Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. With the phrase financial repression, that is a good security here into William Gross. The world would stop when he worked at PIMCO for a monthly newsletter. Uh, he has been in a kind retirement where his golf game has, uh, I believe, reports have it, has improved. But we're <laughs> thrilled that Bill Gross would uh, join us today. And here is why. The new normal is one of the great calls of the decade. There's Steve Major at HSBC, Gary Schilling with his call on deflation and disinflation. And then there was Gross in Elarian in the new normal. Bill, if you look back over 10 years to the advent of the new normal, now you've got a pandemic overlay. Do we escape your new normal at any point? Oh, I, I, I think we began to escape it, um, but, and 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 perhaps we will um, continue to do so. You know, the new normal was was based on a slower economy, lower inflation, uh, it incorporated globalization uh, to some extent, demographics. I I think that. Demographic influence continues. Globalization has actually turned mm -hmm. into deglobalization, which is not deflationary but inflationary. So that's uh, been a change outside the pandemic, and, and of course, the pandemic has not um, has not helped uh, globalization. It's actually accelerated deglobalization. So, to to some extent, uh, yes, the the right. virus is changing things rather. Bill, any number of things to talk about, but I've got to go to your memo today where you talk about a $6 trillion uh, deficit. We've heard this from other sources. The great economist Claudia Sam has made clear we need much, much more deficit coverage. What does your world do? What does the bond world do if we get out to three, four, five, and $6 trillion deficits? Well, the bond world at the moment, uh, it, you know, it is a melding of uh, of the Fed and the Treasury. Uh, you know, to my way of thinking, this this sounds rather derogatory, but the uh, you know the Fed is the dog and the uh, the Treasury is wagging it. And to a certain extent, if if the Treasury wants money, if they want four or five, six trillion, then the Fed will provide it through uh, MMT and through. Uh, through purchases, which they've done. Now, is, do I endorse that? No. Uh, is that a constructive uh, thing down the road? Probably not. Is it inflationary? Uh, probably yes. We'll have to see, but it hasn't been in Japan. Right. But to the extent that we've melded fiscal and monetary, and I think rather permanently now, um, yeah, deficits can increase. But gosh, Tom, we're, we're at 100% of GDP already, and it goes to 120, 130, 140, 150. And at some point, uh, as others point out, if the if the Fed stays out of it or or uh, right. re their influence, then inflation is going to come back. And in any case, we've had inflation with financial assets and with commodities, and so it's just come back in another form. Uh, Bill, I remember the day where you recommended the Procter & Gamble dividend and the bond world fell off its collective chair. Now we have permanence of gross financial repression. I'm going to give you great credit for coming up with that concept. Do we have an asset bubble or bubbles plural because we have your financial repression? 
Oh, I think so. Um, and we have an asset bubble because interest rates are near zero and negative in uh, many parts of the world. And that, at least to my way of thinking, you know, through uh, dividend discount models and so on, have inflated growth stocks and anything that, uh, you know, have profits uh, far in the future but are growing fast. So, um so, yeah, but financial repression, if we want to uh, speak to that, is, is something that's always been swept under the rug by not only by Powell, but by Yellen and uh, Bernanke, et cetera. It's something that can be fixed at a later point because, you know, prior Fed uh, chairpersons have uh, either focused on inflation or focused on you know, revigorating the economy. And uh, to the extent that uh, that retirees and to the extent that pension funds and savers, so to speak, are being hurt, well, that can just wait. But at some point, it can't. And I think we're beginning to see that. I mean, we don't have to talk about uh, prudential or insurance companies or banks. Uh, we, we can talk about mom and pop on Main Street in Des Moines, Iowa, where um, they have no more savings and uh, they're not able to earn money on uh, whatever they have left. And uh, you know, the problem year by year uh, is getting increasingly greater. And I, I think ultimately that becomes the, uh, um, the the real chink in the armor of this entire financial complex. Bill, Jonathan here. Always enjoy your writing and you've never hidden your personality when you do write. I do think, however, today when people read this investment outlook, the investment calls within it aren't the things that are going to jump out at them. It's the things you write about your family. And I ask you this question, Bill, with a deep amount of respect for your career. What's behind that this morning as you put this out? Well, I've always wanted to let people know who I am. Um, and to, to the extent that they know who you are and there's a, a certain amount of honesty in in talking about yourself and your life, then, you know, to my way of thinking, it always translated into a, uh, an equal amount of honesty in terms of the investment world. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's uh, always been an autobiographical type of thing. I didn't want to write a book about my life, but to a certain extent, these outlooks, uh, you know, outline my life as, as I've moved along in the, the current one where I talk about my son's tattoos, um, you know, I, I think it's pretty interesting. It's a topical uh, you know, piece of information, not only for my family, but for uh, society. And, uh, you know, uh, to the extent that readers like it, fine. If they don't like it, and some don't, then that's fine, too. Well, Bill, you know that many people are interested in your life. And once again, with a deep amount of respect for the family members that might read this and be terribly upset, you do refer to your son as a disappointment. And I'm trying to understand from you, you look happy right now as we talk, hugely successful. And when people read this, they might just be thinking, Bill sounds really bitter and unhappy. What would you respond to them if they asked you that? Well, I, I, you know, I talked about tattoos. I said he was a disappointment in terms of tattoos and that, uh, um, you know, that doesn't mean he's necessarily a disappointment as a son. I didn't have enough room and space for that. But, um, you know, I talked about my other two kids as well, uh, relatively tattoo free and uh, you know, just uh, something funny uh, to talk about, especially the tattoo on the inside of uh, my son's lip, yeah. who... Yeah. 
you know. Yeah, I, Lisa, I, the issue here is his son didn't get a 49ers tattoo. No. I That's the real issue. And you're going to go get a Tots tattoo. I do want to say, uh, just going back to the investment thesis, Bill, the idea that you were making an analogy of the tattoo on the global economy that can't be removed for a very long time. And you talk about how you expect the bulk of stimulus to have already occurred and that you, it's time to get more defensive. What does it mean to get defensive with yields so low right now? Well, a number of things, and yes, that I think the tattoo, um, uh, you know, is applicable to the global economy. A tattoo is a discoloring of the skin, and and certainly, the global economy has been discolored by uh, by the virus, and things have changed in many ways, as as you've spoken to, you know, certainly in the past half hour. What does it mean uh, in terms of investments and defensive? Uh, yield types of investments. I'm always amazed, and I I don't discount the phenomena of uh, gross stocks and and the the fangs and the big five, as I call them, um, and others, uh, because you know as real interest rates have declined in the U.S. to amazingly on the five year to a minus 130 basis points, much more than other countries, then you know uh, this dividend discount models would account for that and make growth stocks do much better than you know certainly other investments in the U.S. and 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 globally. Um, but in, in terms of dividends, I'm always amazed that others don't recognize that if you can borrow money at uh, zero and one percent, and investors can probably borrow it at two percent on margin, then a, a, a relatively stable seven to eight percent investment, uh, call it a, a tobacco stock, or you know where I gravitated uh, to some natural gas pipeline stocks with uh, relatively firm well, dividends. Well, the spread. And, and if you compound that, uh, you know, six or seven percent a year relative to your borrowing rate, well, that's it's uh, almost as good as a growth stock, uh, not as good as an Amazon, but uh, pretty good, a stable investor. Bill, just real quick here, are you saying that leverage is good in this kind of environment, given how low rates are? Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, you've got a lever, and to the extent that leverage comes back and snaps you, it does that when central banks raise rates. And of course, uh, you know, I don't think and others and uh, most don't think that rates will be raised for a long, long time. So yes, you've, you've got to be able to borrow money. You can do that with closed end funds that lever. You can do that with, you know, margin at your own account. Uh, uh, whenever you lever, however, you want to do it safely because uh, as we know, uh, ultimately, leverage uh, is destructive and uh, the, the forerunner of a bear market as opposed to a bull market. Bill, always appreciate your transparency and you're always generous with your time. Thanks for joining us today. Bill Gross there on his new investment outlook that he released earlier this morning. Let's use every second we have with Dan Eyes here with Wedbush. I'm secured, as I'm sure most of our audience on radio and television know of his enthusiasm for technology. Dan, we want to talk to you about China, America, and technology, and yes, talk tick and all that. But Dan Ives, just reaffirm for us your bullishness on these beleaguered techs right now. Is this the mother of all buy-the-dip opportunities in Apple, in Amazon, and the others? Yeah, look, I view it as a golden buying opportunity because, in my opinion— we're still in the sixth inning of a re-rating in tech, and this is just a healthy pullback. I still view 20 to 25 percent higher for tech stocks and fang names over the next six to nine months. Dan, when you say that to clients in a Zoom meeting, whatever it is these days, 20 to 25 percent higher 
What do they say back right now? Most of the questions are, which are the names? Who in software do you own? What are the tech <laughs> themes? Because, John, what I would tell you is it's two, it's two to one ratio. Investors looking to do the work on who the winners are rather than hit the panic button and sell. And that's in 20 plus years covering tech in terms of just from a, a scale of white knuckles uh, from my perspective. Yeah. I think Deutsche Bank asked this question in the last week or so, Dan. So let me ask it of you. The distinction between a tech revolution and a bubble. A bubble, which I, you know, I was, I was, I was an analyst through 99, 2000. It was all about secular themes that might happen, and the stocks were massively overinflated with no profitable business models. Now, the secular themes are here today. In my opinion, the most transformational tech themes that I've seen in 20-plus years in terms of cloud, 5G, cybersecurity, and others, and these numbers now are starting to reflect it. That's the difference. The secular themes are here. And they're on the horizon. It's not on the common a hoop. And I think that's the difference. And that's why this continues to be a paradigm change in terms of valuations for tech stocks. And I don't view these last week or two as the end well, or some sort of sign of a bubble. Dan, there are a lot of people who would agree with you. They would say that the TOTS page on TalkTech, as Tom might put it, would do really well and could drive revenue. But what multiples make sense? I mean, how high can we go at this point? And I think that that's where I think a lot of these names have to view it as some of the parts, as well as ultimately what numbers look like in a normalized state when we look at over the next 12 to 18 months. And a lot of these growth stories, they've been accelerated by one to two years, sometimes two to three years. So these are still a digestion process in some of these work from home names, a Zoom, a DocuSign, a Zscaler, some of the core cybersecurity. And when you look at large cap tech, I mean, the stronger getting stronger. And I think we go into earnings in terms of 3Q. That's going to yeah. be another catalyst higher, in my opinion. Dan Ives, I want to rip the script right now. This is really important. Cisco and Oracle are, you know, to amateurs like me are tech companies, but they're really not. They're hardware companies up 9% per, uh, 9% per year for the last decade, which is moldy compared to the group you following. How bad do you perceive Lawrence Ellison wants to be like the other guys? Well, I mean, that's the TikTok deal. It's on the outside looking in. And for, for Ellison and Oracle, that was once there. I mean, this is an opportunity for them from a TikTok perspective to, to obviously partner and, and get in the game and get in that conversation. But, but I continue to view this as a massive head-scratcher in terms of Oracle looking at the deal and obviously a partnership, which is totally different than an outright sale, which continues to be the issue. Dan, a head-scratcher, and yet Oracle shares uh, in pre-market trading up more than 9%. Isn't this the kind of activity that would point at some of the froth that you're rejecting? Basically, the idea, people don't understand it. They don't even understand how real it is. They don't even understand what kind of deal this is. And yet, buy Oracle. Well, no, I think that, that's why I think you have to distinguish between, as you'll call it, froth and fundamental drivers. And I think this is an example of, it's, it's a head-scratcher in terms of the Oracle partnership and ultimately what that even means. And if it ultimately gets approval by the White House, and this is not just all noise because it's not a sale or divestiture. But that's why as an investor, I think you gotta see, you got to go through the noise and look at the fundamental drivers. Like you look at the name like Apple, it's a 5G super cycle. I think it's a once-in-a-decade cycle. Yeah. That's why you own that name. Others might have brought – we saw that with Slack over the last week or two. So I think you have to look at the individual stories. It's not just a rising tide of tall boats. 
Dan, you mentioned Apple. We don't do this often, but let's do it now. Can you just talk to me about the middle of March when you dropped your price target, but you maintained that outperform rating? I just want to give you a victory lap for that, Dan, because when we were in those depths of March, people just decided that was it. This bull market was over. And Dan, you just stuck with it, with the big tech names. What was the lesson from that moment? No, I appreciate it. Look, the lesson from that moment is it was all about the install base and seeing the forest through the trees and understanding that this was a panic sell-off. And if you just sort of stuck to those fundamental drivers, the stock was going to re-rate further up. And, and, and that's why I view when you look at Apple, and I, obviously we've talked about it many times, you know, over the last five, six years, many times they, they were dead from a growth perspective. But, yeah, they've come back. Look, and that's why the haters will hate, but it just creates the opportunity, in my opinion. I think still think 150 base case, 175 bull. Up 52% on the year. Hey, Dan, fantastic to catch up with you, as always. Dan Ives Thank there you. of Wedbush. Joining us now, Francis Donald with Manual Life Asset Management, doing wonderful work across the entire equation of economics. Francis Donald, are the airlines an outlier, or can you actually see U.S. economic growth slowing into the end of the year? Oh, certainly the momentum could stall. Are you a first derivative or second derivative type of guy, Tom? Really, this is an incredibly interesting recovery because you can pick a sector and make a story out of it. Or you can also pick sectors that are doing very well, anything in the manufacturing space. We're going to end up with, and I hate to use a letter-shaped recovery, it seems pretty simplistic, but we're going to end up with a K-shaped recovery here, which is that segments of the economy, Uh, like airlines, are going to do really poorly, and you're also going to have areas like industrial manufacturing that are going to do well. So you can have any analyst on, they'll pick a sector, they can make a story out of it. Let's yeah, be really careful about disaggregating what's happening under under the. And, and Lisa, there's a new alphabet out there now. It's a K-shaped recovery, according to Ms. Donald. I know because of your support of Arsenal, it's <laughs> going to be an A-shaped recovery here in about 12 weeks. Absolutely, or a G-shaped uh, recovery for the Gunners. I will say, Francis, though, you know, talking about the airlines is emblematic. One thing that has been constant has been airlines layoffs of employees, and they're planning to do another round of possibly tens, <clears throat> hundreds of thousands of layoffs once they're able from the government, from the federal government, wears out. And and to Tom's point, this is probably why they don't want to get a bailout. They don't want the strings attached. They don't have the strings attached from the capital markets. How much is that being factored into some of the projections for the economy? The fact that some of these big employers still have layoffs to make that haven't necessarily been even announced yet. Once again, we're using one sector to to really paint an excellent example for what's happening underlying the surface, and that is we really have two employment shocks in the U.S. and global economy. We had those 80% of those who were initially laid off who were told, your job loss is temporary, and now that number is falling quickly. We have 800,000 to a million Americans a week who are filing for unemployment insurance. Those job losses are not going to be temporary. Those are more like 2001 or 2008-style recessions. So even those who were told their job loss would be temporary may become permanent. My suspicion is actually even though we have fewer people who are unemployed now, the composition of the labor market is actually much less healthy now in August, September than it was in April. So we we really have to move away from that headline figure, pay attention to the quality underlying the surface. Well, Francis, let's build on that just a little bit more. The composition of this economy going forward. Capital economics in the last 24 hours did a nice little job on this. It's not about the recovery, 
for the next six to 12 months. It's about the permanent changes of this economy and the sector makeup of it and the shifts, the permanent shifts we're witnessing. Can you speak to that, Francis? It's a huge challenge if you're an asset manager because you know there's another side to COVID and we don't know when it is and we don't even know what unlocks it. I would argue it's not even a vaccine. It's just, you know, reduction in the fatality rate. So what do you do? You have to trade tactical <clears throat> portfolios, but ultimately focus on the long-term trends. Now, there will be those who are going to focus on behavioral changes or composition of the economy changes. My view as a macroeconomist is to say what fundamentally changed here and what fundamentally changed is that we're going to have base bottom interest rates for at least five years and possibly longer. We're going to have extraordinarily large government deficits and debt to GDP. And we've entered this new paradigm, particularly in North America, where a government issues a bond and a central bank buys it. So we can call that all types of different things, but smells a little bit like debt monetization to me. So these are the structural trends that have really affected our financial system. And sure, you can be excited about digitalization of the economy or, or the end of malls, but what really start seeing or addressing the way that I'm thinking about my portfolio is what do we do when government bonds are giving us a negative return and we have to make 7 percent are, are you predicting that are you predicting negative interest rates just because of the structural challenges well I'm not predicting negative interest rates in the United States so I suspect there the probability assigned by the market is still probably too low but we have 20 percent of the global government bond universe that's negative yielding so if you're an asset manager and you have to allocate to global government bonds this is an asset class that has lost a huge amount of appeal so you have to rotate into another asset class you have to generate your six to seven percent it means we're going to see big flows into under own asset classes more flows interna- international and more flows into Emerging market debt, high yield. This is why these sectors are doing fundamentally well, because we have to put the money somewhere. It doesn't exist in the traditional global government bond asset class anymore. So, Francis, you're talking about how the labor market looks less healthy now, and yet you're talking about places to allocate your money based on low-yielding, uh, the low-yielding regime that we're in. When will fundamentals matter anymore or again? Um, I, I hope soon because I like my job as someone who does fundamental analysis. But I will say, you know, we talk about this disconnect between the economy and the stock market. I'm not so convinced the, the disconnect is as large as people believe it is. The reason that I, you know, really give in to this idea that we do have a K-shaped recovery is because it's a simplistic way to highlight manufacturing is really doing quite fine. We press a button, our conveyor belts come back on. They do not have to operate with social distancing in effect. That's critical because manufacturing is only 10% of the economy, but it's 40 to 50% of earnings and market cap in the S&P. So the segment of the economy that's actually doing really well and is V-shaped is the one that's most tied to the stock market. Jobs, services are less in the stock market. So this K-shaped recovery actually becomes a fundamental investment thesis, and it helps to explain some, not all, of this disconnect. You see, Francis, this is so important. It's not about whether fundamentals matter or not. It's about how they matter going forward from here and how they matter for central banks as well. 20 years ago for the last, I don't know, 100 years for the Federal Reserve, the story has always been when things get bad, you cut rates and when things get better, you hike them. The new story at the Federal Reserve is when things get bad, you cut rates and throw everything at it. And when things get better, maybe you do nothing. And Francis, that's something we've still got to get our hands around, possibly for the next decade or so. How are you thinking about this shift at the Fed? Well, effectively, what that translates to is I spend an awful lot more time thinking about fiscal policy than I do monetary policy. It also means, for example, when I'm generating five-year forecasts, 
I actually have some moderate inflationary pressures in my forecast, but I don't have higher policy rates and I don't have materially <laughs> higher rates in the market between the zero and 10 year. Why is that? Because we have this disconnect now. We can allow for higher inflation and not necessarily mean that that means higher interest rates. So this is a paradigm shift in the way that we see those two factors playing together. But ultimately what it means is we've known for a long time monetary policy is a very blunt instrument. It's one tool across the whole economy. The shift here, and you know, I'm in my career off of commenting on central banks, that is kind of the old world. The new world is how is fiscal policy going to target specific sectors that need help and how will fiscal well, policy and issuance affect the shape of the curve? What are wages going to do here in the Donald new world? Amazon with 100,000 jobs today as a round number. It's 11 percent of the workforce. It's probably a greater percent of the cardboard box force is, well, 15 bucks an hour with benefits. Does that get it done? I mean, Francis, what, is, what do wages do in your new world? So wages is the one component of the election that I think matters more than even, say, tax hikes or tax cuts, for example. So if we do get this new composition of government, then we're going to be talking differently about health care, i.e. the benefits that you're alluding to. Are we getting a minimum wage of $15? In this new paradigm, we're going to see two forces. We're going to see higher corporate concentration, which means they're going to have more pricing power, but also more ability to price their own labor. But we're also going to have a focus on redistributive policies, demands for higher wages. So they're probably going to be fighting against each other. Ultimately, I am in a moderate inflation camp. I do think wages are going to move up moderately through this period. Uh, but we probably need to think about how they get there in a different way than we have historically, which was, oh, Phillips curve and, you know, output gap. No, the new world is one where we're probably going to be making sort of more manual changes to the way we look at inflation. Hey, Francis, great to catch up. As always, Francis Donald there of Manulife Asset Management. Right now, Lisa Bramlitz and I really want to get to something that's very visceral for both of us, and that is the transportation challenges that we see across New York. That is the Metropolitan Transit Authority. You can do that with Pat Foy, and you can do all the suit and tie stuff, or you can read Jennifer Gunneman's fantabulous article in the New Yorker magazine on driving the bus across Central Park North through this pandemic. It is extraordinary journalism. And Pat Foy, I know you saw that article about one of your bus drivers, Terrence Lane, as well. I love deep in the article where they say, and I'm going to paraphrase, folks, the policemen see you when you're needed, the firemen see you when you're needed, but the bus driver and all of your MTA, you guys see us each and every day. Yeah, Tom, uh, MTA employees uh, performed heroically during the pandemic, uh, as they did after 9-11, as they did after Superstorm Sandy. Obviously, the coronavirus exacted an incredible toll across, across New York. Uh, and at the MTA, 131 of our colleagues passed away uh, from the virus. New York was the epicenter. But the heroic work of men and women working on subways and buses and Metro North and Long Island Railroad and Accessoride and bridges and tunnels is extraordinary. And each of those men and women played an incredible role in supporting New York and moving first responders and essential employees uh, during the pandemic, which I'll remind uh, your uh, viewers is continuing. What's so important here is with the funding shortfall, and if you do not get aid from various larger governments, how many layoffs do you perceive? Well, look, we are asking the federal government for an additional 
$12 billion, which is the amount of loss we will have in the remainder of 2020 and into 2021. Ridership is down. It's down actually subways, buses, Metro North and Long Island significantly greater than during the Great Depression, uh, which, which, is, uh, which is extraordinary. If we don't get federal aid, and that's really incumbent upon this, the Republican Senate leadership uh, to, uh, to, to, move that, uh, to move that bill and move that funding, uh, we may have to cut subway and bus service up to, 70, uh, up to 40% and lay off about 7,400 employees and up to 50% service reduction on Metro North on Long Island Railroad. Those cuts would be devastating. And, and frankly, the, the MTA is really the circulatory system of the New York City regional economy. And jobs will not be created. The recovery will be stunted and thwarted if we don't get that level of funding. I also just want to point out the following. Uh, the Chicago Transit Authority, important and well-run agency, pre-pandemic carried on an average day about 2.5 million customers. Last week, in the, in, the, in the throes of the pandemic, we carried 2.6 million. Uh, so that's a pre-pandemic uh, comparison on, on the, in the case of Chicago and during the pandemic in the case of the MTA, and it just demonstrates how important the MTA is. Uh, if, if we don't get that funding and have to make those cuts, it will have a significant drastic effect on the New York economy, Tom. As somebody, Pat, uh, who grew up in New York City riding the subway system and who has seen it through the, through the 80s, through the 90s, there is a fear that we're heading back to another era with the subway system. How realistic is it that we are going to make those cuts? I mean, a lot of people hear what you're saying and, are, and, and just sort of chalk it up as a negotiating <clears throat> tactic. Are we on the brink of heading back to the 80s and the 90s for the subway system? It's not a negotiating attack, Lisa. Uh, we've been downgraded uh, again. Uh, the rating agencies are uh, not, not political figures. Uh, they're calling it as, uh, as we see it. Uh, going into, the, into 2020, we expected an $80 million surplus. We expected to take hundreds of millions of dollars out of the expense base of the MTA. Uh, we, we've done that. We expect to take an additional billion out in, uh, in 2021. But this is not a negotiating uh, me measure. Uh, we have a $12 billion deficit we've got to face. The only level of government that can uh, fund that is the federal government. Yeah. Uh, the st every state and every city yeah. is broke, including the state of New York and the, and the city of New York, and it's only the federal government. This is a national crisis that requires a national solution. Pat, given that financial backdrop, how do you plan on deploying the resources to enforce the new uh, mandate to wear masks on uh, the subways and buses or face a $50 fine? So it's, it's a great question. So the uh, mask fine provision went into effect uh, this morning. We've been surveying our customers, physically counting. Uh, mask compliance before today was about 96% on buses, 91% on subways, well over 90 on Metro North and Long Island Railroad. I, I spent the morning uh, this morning with the MTA mask task force. Uh, I rode the E uh, in, in, uh, in Queens from Jamaica, it got off at 74th Street and Roosevelt Avenue, took the seven, then got on the uh, uh, the four or the five from uh, Grand Central down to uh, uh, Bowling Green, which is where the NTA's office is. I will tell you that of the thousands of people we saw this morning, uh, there was only one without a mask. My colleagues and I handed out probably a couple of hundred masks to people so, who already had them, so they'd have them for tomorrow. Masks are, are available from station agents. They were also being distributed by well, Long Island Railroad and Metro North. 
our goal is not to find anybody. This is not a revenue matter. Uh, it's in the it's in the interest of public health, protecting our customers right. uh, and our employees. Wearing a mask right. is the most important thing to do. That we don't we yeah. we're not looking to issue a lot of fines. Pat, we're out of time, but we say congratulations to you and all of the essential workers of your MTA. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.